But thank you guys so much for being flexible. Uh, like Anson said, this is just a one-off uh, random event. Uh, we were notified literally five days before that they had an event. They confirmed with us, and so we couldn't meet there. But we will be back at Dale's next week, uh, and then they said for the rest of the year, so there should be no more parking lot worship services. Praise God. Okay, uh, turn to 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, and we're going to get into the Word of God. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. And if you're joining us here in person, there is no screen. You're going to have to look it up on your phone, or hopefully you brought your Bibles. If you're joining us online, then you shall see it on your screen as usual. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. This is God's word. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Let's pray. Father God, you are great, and you are faithful, Lord. And Lord, whether we worship indoors or outdoors, all together or remotely, Father, you are always with us. And we thank you so much for your presence that is here. Uh, The church is not a building. It is the people. We are the church. So thank you so much, Lord. And I pray and ask now that you would speak to your church, that your word would be sharp like a double-edged sword, that it would cut, that it would build up, that it would heal. Father God, um, your intention every time the word goes out is to reveal that which is not well and to make well and to save and to heal. So Lord God, I pray and ask that would happen. Uh, We thank you so much for everyone here. Uh, Keep us cool, Lord God. Thank you for everyone joining us online. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, praise the Lord. Well, for the last two weeks, we've been looking at the first three verses in chapter two, which is Peter's thumbnail sketch. You should be familiar with this by now. Third week, we're talking about it. But this is Peter's little intro to false teachers and false teachings that that had infiltrated in the churches that he was writing to. And so this is Peter's intro to this entire topic. And we took Peter's description of the false teachers and false teachings that will come among us. And this is what Peter said. He said, they will come among us. Very strange that he used the future tense. But we took what Peter said about them and we have been applying it to specific false teachings in our day. And in particular, one false teaching that has been spreading everywhere, including throughout the church today. And that false teaching, you should know, is neo-paganism. Neo-paganism. Now, for those of you guys who are wondering, why are we spending so much time on this? (laughs) This is my third week, and I've only been here for three weeks. Well, I wasn't planning on spending this much time on this topic. It wasn't going to be a three-part sermon. I just simply couldn't cover everything last week because there was too much. So we're just carrying it one more week to today. But it's also something that I cannot skip over. Because first, I believe the false teaching that Peter was dealing with back in the first century, was related to what we're seeing today, the paganism today. But back in the first century, Peter was probably dealing with an early form of pagan Gnosticism. And we're not going to get into what that is exactly, but it was a form of paganism. It didn't come from the Bible. It didn't come from Jewish teaching. It didn't come from Christian teaching. But this was probably seeping into the early church. So Peter addressed it in his second letter. 
And neo-paganism today has a connection, I believe, to what Peter addressed, what he warned against back then. So this is one reason we're spending so much time on it. But second, another reason is neo-paganism is not just a niche movement in a corner somewhere. It's not just some fad. But we are not talking about just a show on Netflix you shouldn't watch. We're not talking about some weird things happening in a coffee shop in San Francisco. But we are talking about an explosive movement that is everywhere in our culture. And if you're not aware of this, I encourage you, just look up. Look up from your work, look up from your school every now and then, and just look around. Talk to people around you. It is everywhere. It is online. It is offline. It is in the big cities. It is in the small towns. It's in the music industry, in the movie industry, it's in big tech, it's in politics, it's everywhere. And because it's everywhere, I've been saying this, it's shifting our culture. The society we're living in literally is changing because of it. One reason. And Jesus, of course, predicted all of this. He said this would happen in Matthew 12, 43 through 45. We're not going to look at that again. But basically, Jesus told this parable of a man who was demon-possessed. The demons were cast out. And then because he didn't have faith in Christ, these demons came back with seven others, more, more evil than itself. And so Jesus said, this is the same with this evil generation. But when an entire generation or culture comes to me, the demons will be driven out. But when that generation abandons faith in me and in my word, Jesus said, the demons will come back. And they will come back in greater force than before. And so this is exactly what has happened in the West. And as a culture, we have abandoned Christ and his word. We know that. And the demons have come back. They have come back in greater force than ever before. And it is fueling some of the most troubling things that we're seeing in our society today. So again, I'm not just talking about that show on Netflix about witches. Okay, this is fueling some of the most troubling things today, like the mainstreaming of the occult the homosexuality movement, the transgender movement. And when I say all these things are troubling, I'm not talking about the people per se, but I'm talking about the pagan beliefs and ideologies behind these movements. Okay, I'm not talking about the people caught up in these movements. Okay, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, Paul said. So our motivation in talking about the, these things is not to fight people, but it's to love people. We want to love them by telling them the truth about paganism. We want to tell them the truth about Christ and the salvation that he freely offers. Now, I know today people, they don't see love in that way. They're going to be like, that's not love. And the reason why is because today people conflate love with approval. It's a big error. But they see love and approval as the same thing. They say, if you love me, then you need to approve everything I say and do. Now, how many of you guys are parents? We know as parents that is not true. That is absolutely not true because love oftentimes we know as parents is the exact opposite. It's to not approve of things. Amen? As a parent, I've said this every now and then, but because I love you, I can't approve of your choice of clothes. Because I love you, I cannot approve of your, well, I've never said this, but your choice of friends. <laughs> I cannot approve of your language. Okay, these are common things that parents say. But it's because of our love that we can't approve and that is how God is with neo-paganism and these different movements that is fueling. God simply cannot approve. Why? Because of love. And so we must also be the same and we must share that message with others. And so this is why we're talking about this. This is why we're spending our third week on this now. And we're going to actually carry it into next week talking about a different movement, a different false teaching.
Now, going back to neopaganism, last week we began answering some questions on neopaganism. So this is what we've been doing, just going through some questions. But what is it? Why are people drawn to it? And what are essential beliefs? And quickly, let me just do a brief review because unless we truly have a grasp on this, we're not going to understand how it's in the church today. But first, what is it? What is neopaganism? Well, first, paganism is simply any religion or belief system that is not Judaism, Islam, or Christianity. That's the, uh, that's the dictionary definition today. Now, last week, I did say that Islam is actually pagan and occultic in origins. But when people talk about paganism today, the technical definition excludes Islam. It is any religion or belief system that is not Judaism, Islam, or Christianity. So that's paganism. Now, neo-paganism are the old pagan religions that have been brought back. So people today, they are not wanting to be Christian. They are not wanting to be any of these monotheistic religions. So they set them aside and they're now looking back to the old pagan ancient religions and they've brought them back. And they have reinterpreted them for modern times. And so that is neo-paganism. And last week I mentioned several different religions, neo-pagan religions that are very popular today. By the way, if you missed last week's sermon, we can't go into all of that again, so go back and listen to it. If you want to review what we talked about, go back and listen to it. But last week, we looked at several different actual neo-pagan religions that are very popular, growing very fast today. And these pagan religions also have a very close connection with the occult. The occult. That word literally means hidden or secret. So all these pagan religions, they all have a connection with the occult. They are not the same thing. They make a point about that. They're not the same thing, but they all have an overlap. And so they all focus on some sort of secret knowledge that they're offering, some sort of secret knowledge that they want to offer to you. And this seeking after secret knowledge is what opens the door to the demonic. This is how people get trapped in the demonic. And there's much more we can say about that, but that's what paganism is. That is neo-paganism. Now, why are people drawn to it? Okay, why is it so popular today? I mean, if I were to just launch out into the city and try to start a cult, it probably would fizzle out in a year or two, right? It wouldn't go very well. Probably not. It might go well, but probably not. But why are so many people drawn to this? Well, they are drawn to it because they have rejected monotheistic religion, especially Christianity. But that doesn't mean that they are now worshiping the devil. In fact, many people in these pagan religions, they say, I don't even believe in the devil. Then why are they drawn to neo-paganism? and end up opening themselves to the demonic? Well, it's because they are seeking what everyone else is seeking. So last week, again, I gave several examples of this, but they are seeking community. How many guys are looking for community? How many guys came out to promise because of community? Well, this is what they're looking for, but they don't go to church, they're not Christian. But they're looking for community, identity, guidance, power, protection. Okay, Non-Christians, they worry about guidance. Okay, do I marry this person? Do I take this job? Just like Christians do. They worry about all that. Well, where are they going to find that guidance? They don't trust their mom and dad anymore. Where are they going to go? So a lot of these people, they turn to paganism and the occult. And they were deceived into thinking paganism and the occult would offer the answers. And so this is why millions are drawn into this. But there's a deeper reason why people are drawn into neo-paganism. And here's the deeper reason. At its core, people are drawn into it because they want to be their own God. You know, there was a season about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, where I watched a lot of videos, a lot of testimonies on people who came out of that movement. 
And the majority said that. They all said, when I was in it, I was deceived, I was blind, and I wanted to be my own God. A lot of them say that. So this is at the core. Deep down, they wanted to be their own God over their own lives. And so this is a form of rebellion, and this is what the Bible says. 1 Samuel 5, 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And neo-pagans today, they are deep into witchcraft. But that is rebellion. So this is why people are drawn into neo-paganism. They are seeking what everyone else is seeking. Things like community, identity, guidance, protection. And yet they are deceived. And they are also rebellious. They are wanting to be the God over their own lives. But thankfully, like I said, I've seen many videos of people coming out of this movement. Thousands have. They've been saved gloriously through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but there are still millions trapped in it. And so again, we need to look at this. We need to talk about this. In fact, I said this last week, but there are family members, I know. There are family members who are probably dabbling in this. You have coworkers, classmates for sure who are in this. There are people in paganism and the occult. And then finally, last week, we looked at what are essential beliefs. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this because if you don't understand its beliefs, you're not going to understand why it's coming into the church. But what are essential beliefs? Well, neo-paganism is as old as human beings on the earth. It is actually mentioned all throughout scripture. As soon as human beings were made by God in his image and they began to cry out, paganism came in. And so, since the very beginning of time, paganism has believed in this false teaching. They have rejected the two, and they have taught that everything is one. Okay, what does that mean? Well, that definition comes from a theologian. His name is Peter Jones, a very well-respected theologian. But he said, paganism rejects the two realities of God, the creator, and his creation. All throughout scripture, the moment you open up the Bible, you see those two realities. There is God, and then there is his creation. But paganism rejects that, and instead, it teaches everything is one. We're all one. All the gods, and yes, they believe in many gods, but all the gods, the universe, the physical earth, plants, animals, and human beings, we are all one. We are all made of the same divine essence. We are one. And this is what they worship. And this is exactly what Paul said is humanity's problem in Romans 125. And they, humanity, exchanged the truth about God, that he is creator, we are created. They exchanged that truth for a lie and worshiped and served the creature and the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. So the Bible called it out right there. That is paganism. And because paganism teaches that all is one, it seeks to break down all distinctions that God has set up. And this is very vital. We need to understand this. This is exactly what they're pushing. This is what they're promoting. This is what is spreading. But they're trying to break down all distinctions that God has set up. So what are we talking about? Distinctions like between human beings and God. Are we in the image of God? Yes. Does God relate to us? Yes, intimately. And yet there is a divide. We are not like God. We are not God, I should say. And God is not like us. There's a divide. And yet paganism blurs that. Between men and women. It blurs that, and we talked about that last week. Androgyny is a big, big focal point in pagan religions. Between heterosexual monogamous marriage and all other forms of sexual relationships. So I could go on, but these are the major distinctions that paganism breaks down. Why? Because we're all one. We're all made of the same stuff. And so this is exactly what we see in pagan religions since ancient times. 
And this is what people don't realize. Okay, when they hear the word paganism and alcohol, they go, yeah, those weird people on, on TikTok, right? Into the new age. Well, this is an old thing. It's not a new thing. It's very ancient. And any historian who has studied this is very clear immediately what they're focused on. They have always been, for example, focused on androgyny. Okay, number one, androgyny. Last week I talked about this at length, but andros means male, gyne means female, androgyny is a combined word. It just means the male-female. It's a blurring of the biological sex. You're neither male nor female. So strangely, paganism since ancient times has focused on that. Homosexuality, the breaking down of heterosexual monogamous marriage and the sexuality that God designed, it breaks all of that down. Since ancient times, paganism has also focused on that. Peter Jones, going back to him, he wrote this fascinating essay. I, I read it, it's on my computer. It's about 35 pages long, not that long. But that document, that essay, documents the unique phenomenon that he found in every pagan occultic religion all throughout history, all throughout the world, isolated from one another. I'll repeat that again. As Jones and other historians kind of begin to poke around looking at paganism all throughout history, all throughout the world, they were isolated from one another. They didn't know each other. They didn't touch each other. And yet they all had this phenomenon the same, which was the presence of androgynous homosexual priests serving in key roles in pagan rituals. So isn't that strange? So never talked to each other, never knew each other, developed in isolation, and yet they all had this feature in common. They all had these androgynous homosexual priests serving in key roles. And clearly, we see this focus on androgyny and homosexuality, even in Christianized pagan religions. So last week, you had the privilege of me reading excerpts from the Gospel of Thomas. <laughs> you had the privilege of hearing the Gospel of Thomas, maybe for the first time. It's a very strange gospel. Praise the Lord, it's not in the Bible. But even in Christianized pagan religions, you see that, androgyny, homosexuality. Paganism and the occult has also had an unusual connection with feminism throughout history. So this is also very strange. Now, I'm not talking about the legitimate form of feminism that fought for women's rights, equality under the law. All of that was necessary. All of that was needed. That was a good thing. But we're not talking about that kind. We're talking about the feminism that elevates women to a divine-like status. And so you see this in all kinds of pagan religions all around the world, again, isolated from one another. But there's like this divine feminine figure. It's very strange. By the way, you see that all in our culture today. When's the last time you guys went to a Beyonce concert? You see Beyonce all the time coming out with some crown or Madonna or Wonder Woman. I mean, these divine feminine images are everywhere today. It's pagan. But you see this feminism as a focal point. And so this is the feminism that breaks down the divine order that God set up of God the Father, Jesus Christ, the husband, the wife, the children. And feminism has consistently, all throughout human history, not just today, all throughout history, tried to break that down. And paganism was connected to that. So paganism was also opposed to that order. And Christians were not the ones making this connection, but it's coming from their very own people in their own religions. And so again, this is well documented as far back as you can go. I mentioned a few different quotes, a few different people in those movements saying these things. But it's the feminist movement. That's what's given life and energy to paganism today. A lot of these people say that is the focal point, this divine feminine figure. But why, though? Okay, well, what is going on? Okay, why? Well, this connection between paganism and feminism, 
I believe, comes straight from the source of all this stuff, which is Satan himself. And so last week, we talked about how Satan, since the very beginning of humanity on earth, did what? It attacked humanity by going after who? The woman. And I like what this one theologian said, but it's not because the woman was the weaker person, but it's because the woman held this unique position and influence in that order of God the Father, Christ the husband, the wife, the children. But the wife, according to one theologian, has a unique relationship to all those parties in that order in ways that even the husband doesn't. And so Satan knew that and went after the woman's unique place and influence. He went after her and everything began to crumble. And the man was swept up as well, of course. The man is utterly culpable as well. And so now, fast forward millennia and nothing has changed. Satan is exactly the same. And like I've been saying every single week, the Bible is not just a story, it is our story. And so I want us to understand that. The Bible is actually a book talking about today. I've been quoting this pastor, Mark Driscoll, but he said, the Bible is not just what happened, but it's what always happens. And so this is what we see in scripture. What Satan did at the very beginning, at the dawn of humanity, is what is still happening today. And so Satan comes after humanity, and he comes after the woman in unique ways. Of course he comes after the man as well, but he also comes after the woman especially in unique ways. But then Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy and he did it while elevating women. He did it while restoring the dignity and worth of women. And again, we can't get into it, but we looked at the story of Mary and Martha. You see that clearly, Jesus elevating and bringing dignity to women. But Jesus, please hear this, but he did it in a way that never broke that order. Not once does he talk about breaking that order or changing that order of God the Father, Jesus Christ, the husband, the wife, children. While elevating the women, giving them dignity and value as his image bearers, he never broke that order. So then who is trying to break that order? Satan. He is constantly coming against it. So there is an all-out demonic attack, brothers and sisters, especially you sisters. There is an all-out demonic attack right now on men and women, but especially women. Right now, Satan is crushing the men, discouraging them in their role as servant leaders. Okay, how many men have that view? Okay, very few. They're just doing their own thing. And at the same time, he is lying to women. He is speaking to women throughout this culture saying, hey, you can be above everyone. You don't need to be dependent on anyone. You can fulfill your own dreams, your own desires. You can seek your own happiness. And that is the most important thing in life. Isn't that the message everywhere? That is the message everywhere. Okay, I talk to people, I talk to young people, and that's what I hear. That is the message everywhere, even family members who don't know Christ. And brothers and sisters, that's pagan. That's pagan to the core. This is an old ancient message all the way since the dawn of time. And it's coming straight from the father of lies himself. So that's everything we looked at. In a nutshell, I kind of ran through it, but we need to understand what's happening here, brothers and sisters. And if you understand that now, then it won't be so hard to see how all of these pagan demonic teachings are coming into the church. Once you understand and have a handle on what is really going on, then you can understand why this is coming into the church. So that's what I want to do for the rest of our time today, is I want to look at how is neo-paganism in the church, and how should we respond to it? So those are the last two questions. So how is neo-paganism in the church? Well... This is kind of a theme, but this is nothing new. But this is ancient. 
But paganism has always been infiltrating the church since the very beginnings of the church. So this is nothing new. Again, Peter was likely addressing pagan teachings in the church in his second letter. But he was likely addressing this. He said in chapter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. He's probably talking about paganism, a form of that. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, Jude, the brother of Jesus, they all wrote against pagan teachings coming into the church. Jesus himself rebuked some of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. He wrote all these letters, sent these letters to these churches in Asia Minor. And to some of those churches, he was rebuking them because of pagan teachings coming into the churches. So this is common. This goes all the way back to the New Testament. And if this is present all throughout church history, then how is it present today? How is paganism in the church today? Well, I see three primary ways. As I've studied this on my own, as I've talked to pastors, I see three primary ways. If you see more, then let me know. But the three ways I see paganism in the church today is through the ecumenical movement. That is clearly one way. Number two, through Christians reclaiming the new age. There's this strange movement happening, not with every church, but there is an influential group of churches that are trying to reclaim the new age. That's another way. And then third, this is huge, but through progressive Christianity. So this is another way. So first, through the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical simply just means the church global. The blurring distinctions, we are just one church globally. There was, there was an article in Christianity Today not too long ago, and it said the late Archbishop William Temple described the church unity movement as the 20th century's most significant development. According to this influential leader, he said the church unity movement, the ecumenical movement, is the biggest thing happening that happened in the 20th century. It goes on, conversations have advanced so swiftly that many ecclesiastical or church leaders now speak of the ecumenical age. This is the age we live in. This is the era we live in. This is when everything is being blurred. We're all just one big global church. But historically, it wasn't always like that. There was a lot of division in the churches and by necessity, but there was division between the Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, between the Protestant churches and both of those groups. Even within Protestant churches, there were divisions. There were many different denominations over issues like gifts of the spirit, infant baptism, women in ministry. There were a lot of different dividing lines, all because of doctrine, theology. And there have been also divisions between Christian churches and the Christian cult religions like Mormonism. So there was division there as well. Then there were also divisions between Christian churches and non-Christian monotheistic religions like Islam. So that was another division that was sharp in ancient times. And all of those divisions were there because of doctrinal, in other words, teaching, biblical teaching, and theological reasons. They were all there by necessity. And yet, fast forward to today, these are steadily being eroded. All these sharp divides, they're being broken down. So Catholic and Protestants have more similarities than differences. Let's, let's come together, right? Protestants and Mormons, we have more similarities than differences. So yeah, we'll do events together. We'll, we'll have the same worship service. Even Christians and Muslims have more similarities than differences, people are saying. We worship the same God. You know, places like Harvard Divinity School, they have been at the forefront of leading these unification movements. 
I know, it just sounds like such an elite school. Oh, Harvard, right? But, but I would recommend never go there. <laughs> never go to Harvard Divinity School. You're gonna come out an ecumenical person. But this is what they're pushing for. Even leaders we would consider evangelical have been making this call for unification of different faiths. He trusted names by a lot of people. But back in the early 2000s, many evangelical leaders like Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, Leith Anderson, I apologize if you're offended by me calling out names, but these are names that were on, that, on this document. But people like them, many others, they signed an open letter from evangelicals to Muslims. And it was a response letter uh, to a letter that Muslims wrote first to evangelicals. But they were calling for interfaith dialogue because we all worship the same God. I'll say that again. They wrote this letter to Muslims in response to what they wrote. But they wrote it because they said, quote unquote, we all worship the same God. By the way, you know, recently, I didn't even search for this, but YouTube just gives me suggestions, right? The algorithm is working hard. And I got this video recommended, but it's, uh, it's actually a video uh, series that I've clicked on. But it's a Muslim apologist. It's a Muslim who became a Christian, and he's an apologist. He defends the Christian faith. And he was talking to another Muslim who became a Christian. So two ex-Muslims who are now Christian, they were talking to each other, and they both speak Arabic. And they were quoting the Quran and Arabic texts fluently. And they both said, you know, the more you study the Quran and Muslim writings, the more you realize Allah is not God at all, but Allah is a demigod, and in fact, Allah could possibly be Satan. This is what these two ex-Muslims who are fluent in Arabic were saying to each other. This is the same God we worship, according to these American evangelical leaders. Well, this is the ecumenical movement. Now, is dialogue good? Of course dialogue is good. Of course we're not called to circle the wagons. As Christians, we believe in a free market of ideas. I love talking to non-Christians. I love hearing their ideas. We don't shut anybody down. As a believer, we should be for free speech more than anybody. So of course, dialogue is good. It is great. And yet, anyone who has studied both the Bible and Islamic history and theology will know Allah is not the same God as the God of the Bible. He simply is not. But that is one example of ecumenism that is growing. There are other movements, even right now, trying to bring different groups together that have historically never been together, such as Roman Catholics and evangelicals being brought together. I think even right now, there's a huge conference somewhere in the world. A lot of high-profile Christian leaders are pushing for this unification, Roman Catholics and evangelicals together. Why? We have similarities. On the biggest thing is, don't we have the same beliefs? We both believe in Jesus, and yet when you dig a little bit deeper, you realize, no, justification by faith through grace alone, through faith alone, they don't believe in that. Scripture alone as the authority over the church, they don't believe in that. Okay, the dead immediately going into the presence of Christ or being judged and cast into they don't believe in that. So no, we don't have the same beliefs on the core, deepest things. And yet they're trying to bring everyone together. And as noble and compassionate as these ecumenical movements may seem, the impulse to break down distinctions is more pagan than Christian. Okay, why do I say that? Why is this more pagan than Christian? Why was Jesus' harshest rebukes to the churches in Revelation over doctrine? He said, you believe in the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. I despise that, Jesus said. And if you do not repent of that, I am gonna come swiftly and remove your lampstand. Why was Jesus so harsh 
over issues of doctrine? Why did Paul give the harshest warnings in the New Testament over compromising the gospel? Why? Well, the reason why is because if you lose that, then you lose eternity. You lose God. And that is exactly what paganism is trying to break down. Remember, paganism is what? It's all about breaking down distinctions. Break them down. Why? Because we're all one. Bring it all together. And so that is the ecumenical movement. Now, real quick, we don't have time to get into this in depth, but, but does that mean we never do anything or work together with anybody outside of just Christians that agree with us? No. For example, we can work with other groups of other faiths, perhaps even fruitfully, if it, if it doesn't involve any teaching or doctrinal issues, such as, let's say, helping hurricane victims. If we're helping hurricane victims and suddenly this other group shows up, Mormons show up, do we, need, do we leave immediately? No. I say continue to help, serve, feeding the poor, helping the distressed. We can do these things even if other groups are there, even if we're doing it together. R.C. Sproul actually believed in this. I remember him teaching on this, if you trust in his teachings. And dialogue, again, is always a good thing. So even as we work with these other groups, you can even talk to them. You can dialogue. There is a free market of ideas. We should let the best ideas rise to the top, which will be what? The gospel, we believe. It will be the gospel. But as we work with these groups, if you are blurring distinctions, oh, we worship the same God. Oh, we're not that different. If you are denying explicit teachings of scripture and you are being very public about it, there's actually a public testimony to that. You're on a very public stage. You're saying very public things and people are being influenced by that. Then I say the Bible condemns it. The Bible condemns it. That is more pagan than Christian. So that is one way that you see paganism spreading through the church. This is a big movement, brothers and sisters. You see it. You see the forces of ecumenical, the ecumenical movement. So that is one way. Here's another way. Paganism is showing up through Christians reclaiming the new age. Reclaiming the new age. Now, the new age has also been brought into the church more and more explicitly in recent times. This has always been there, but now it's becoming explicit. There are now some Christian ministries doing Christian tarot card readings. I actually saw a ministry talking about that. Okay, you want prophecy from God? Well, look at these cards together, and we'll do a reading. There are some who believe in Christian Ouija boards and discerning God's will. There are books that are being sold to Christian audiences that are pagan, like The Secret. If you have that book, I'd like to know. <laughs> Come talk to me. But The Secret, The Law of Attraction, The Power of Positive Thinking, these are all very pagan teachings. One ex-psychic, her name is Stephanie Light, but she said that when she used to have a psychic practice, she said, hear this, 75% of her clients were Christian. Isn't that sad? But she said, when I was a psychic running this business, 75% of the people were Christian. That's a judgment on the church. Even this just past week, you can tell I'm on YouTube a lot, but I was watching YouTube. <laughs> and I was um, recommended, again, YouTube's algorithm. Okay, the algorithm's working hard. It recommended this video. I didn't search for it. But it was a Christian woman. She was talking about her faith journey, her beliefs. She was Asian. That doesn't matter, but she was a Christian woman. And she was talking about her faith. She said she was reformed. I'm like, okay, praise God, I'm reformed too. So I'm listening to her, and then suddenly, I kid you not, in the middle of her video, she's like, oh, and I'm also a witch. <laughs> right? Emergency break went up. Like, what? I was so confused. You're reformed. You grew up in the church. You're talking like you believe in all the right things, and you're a witch? 
And then later her husband showed up, hey, I love my witch wife, right? It's like so bizarre. He didn't say that, but that's the way he acted. So bizarre. So what is that? Well, that's just more evidence of the new age coming into the church. Well, a lot of these occult and new age beliefs are bringing, that is being brought into the church, they are coming through this movement to reclaim the new age for Christ. Okay, that is how a lot of this is being brought into the church. They're trying to reclaim the new age for Christ. And this actually really came to the forefront back in 2015 when this book came out. You might have seen it, maybe not. It was actually published by a Christian publisher called The Physics of Heaven. So that's the title of the book. And that title, by the way, is misleading because it neither has to do anything with physics or Christianity or heaven. <laughs> it's kind of like Christian science. It's not Christian, it's not science. Grape nuts. There's no grapes, it's not nuts, right? But that, very misleading. The physics of heaven. Well, anyway, this book was connected to some high-profile evangelical leaders and churches. They were promoting it. And listen to the authors. This is why they wrote this book. I quote, Many in the church have tended to write off all dabblings into quantum mysticism as blasphemous and demonically inspired. So a lot of Christians have written this off as demonic. However, there are a few courageous Christians who are beginning to speak up and say, wait a minute, there may be some God truth there that really belongs to us that we should know about, exclamation point. These Christians are spearheading an effort to extract the precious from the worthless. In other words, to find what is true in the new age and make those truths available to the church at large. That's a direct quote. That's why these authors wrote this book. And if you were to read that book, I read sections of it. They take different verses out of context to justify that. But nowhere in the Bible, brothers and sisters, at any point does it teach us to redeem occultic and pagan practices for Christ. Nowhere. I've read pretty much the entire Bible more than once. It's never mentioned. Rather, this is what the Bible says, Deuteronomy 18.10. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire or anyone who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For all who do such things are an abomination to the Lord. The Bible's so clear. Leviticus 19.31, do not turn to mediums or wizards. The Bible acknowledges wizards. Lord of the Rings is okay, by the way. I'll, I'll give you reasons why. It's okay. But do not turn to mediums or wizards. Do not seek them out. And so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. The Bible is talking about specific Canaanite practices, deeply entrenched in pagan religions, the occult. This is what God is warning against. Acts 19.18, a great revival broke out in the city of Ephesus, one of the strongholds of pagan religion. They worshiped the, the goddess, the Ashtoreth, the goddess of Ashtoreth. But this is what happened. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, their magical practices. And a number of those who have practiced magic arcs, arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Did you hear that? So what happened when great revival broke out when the gospel was preached? Did they redeem what was true in the new age? Hey, let's go back through all our magical scrolls and see what's good in there. No, they said bring it to the town center we're gonna have a bonfire. They burned it all. 
They absolutely burned it all. And so the Bible is very clear. There's only one position the believer has towards the occult and the new age. You avoid it or you condemn it in order to save people out of it. And for those who say, well, what about the gifts of the spirit? They often appear like the same things we see in the new age and the occult. What about the gifts of the spirit? Maybe those gifts aren't real either. Well, again, on YouTube, (laughs) I was listening to a Christian man who used to be deep in the occult. He's actually well-known in that world. He had a website with hundreds of thousands of followers. He was all over social media. He even wrote books on this topic. And then God gloriously saved him through the faithful prayers of a believing mom. But he got saved, and now he's a Christian. And after he became a Christian, his name is Stephen Bankars. You can look him up. But after Stephen became Christian, he said he went to a few churches to see what they were like. He went to a few charismatic churches. And he said what he saw in those churches were nothing like the actual occult practices he was deeply in earlier. Because some people, they, they made those comparisons going, hey, didn't what you see, weren't they similar? He's like, no, they were nothing alike. Because I know both. He's like, I know what the gifts of the spirit look like and I wouldn't know what these occult practices are. He's like, they are not the same. And he said anything he saw in the new age that even remotely seemed similar to Christianity, he said was easily identified as cheap imitations or false versions of the real thing. So he said there really is a real thing and then there are false imitations of that. And he said because he was deep in both, he's like he could recognize them. He could recognize them. I like what he said. Other Christians who have come out of this movement, paganism, have made the same point. But they have said, just because there is prayer in other religions, does that mean that we don't pray? Does that mean that all prayer is false? No, just because you find prayer in other religions doesn't mean Christians don't pray. No, we pray biblically. Just because there are false religions, does that mean there is no true religion? No, it means we have biblical religion. We follow Christ the right way, biblically. So what this means is we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I know that immediately, the moment we talk about the all called the new age and then spiritual gifts, we go, oh, all of it is demonic. We throw it all out. Well, people who are deep into both, they say, no, there is a distinction. And the more you have discernment, the more you know the word of God, you can see it. You can see it. So for those who have been trained in the word of God and they are growing in discernment, over time, you can identify destructive new age beliefs and practices, and you can identify what is real. You can identify what is real. But that is the second way paganism has come into the church. It is the new age. It is actually very dangerous. So discernment is needed. The third way paganism has come into the church, and this is massive, and this is actually going to be something we're going to carry into next week. So we're going to talk about this more next week when I talk about a different false teaching. But paganism has come through progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity. And specifically, progressive Christianity's march towards gay-affirming, LGBTQ-ordaining beliefs and practices. So it's very interesting. You know, I've been around for a while. I'm an older man, and I've seen the church for the last 30 or so years, and the, the way it's transformed over the years. But it's very interesting to see the church today run towards... This, these movements almost with abandon. All the while when historically paganism had the monopoly on gay affirming LGBTQ ordaining religion. So it's so interesting to me that Christians today are running towards this when it was always the territory of pagans. 
Remember going back to Peter Jones' research into androgynous and homosexual priests found all throughout the world, all throughout history, in every pagan religion, isolated from each other. Remember that? Well, the Christian church has now joined them in large numbers. You know, I searched on Wikipedia the list of Christian denominations that affirm LGBTQ pastors and LGBTQ movements. And there's actually a page dedicated to that. And I wish I could give you a number of denominations of how many have affirmed. But there were so many, I couldn't count them all. It's in the hundreds. I just stopped counting. I'm like, this is going on and on and on forever. They are in the hundreds. And so this is no surprise. Recently, a high-profile evangelical pastor from a conservative seminary, he was not from one of those kind of, you know, middle of the road or even progressive seminary. He was from a very conservative seminary, but he came out recently saying that he can no longer condemn homosexual marriage. Again, we love the people who are struggling in that, who have been caught up in that. And yet, the Bible is clear. This is not the will of God. And yet, this pastor from a conservative seminary said, I can no longer condemn that. And then he proved it by baptizing a gay man who's still in that lifestyle. And then later, he baptized a transgender person who was still holding on to that transgender identity. So he did that very publicly. I also read recently that a large evangelical church in Seattle, a church that I've known for 20 plus years, they started out as just squarely evangelical, but they left their denomination recently, just a month ago, I think. Why? Surprise, surprise, because they no longer felt accepted as a gay-affirming church. Their denomination was no longer affirming what they affirmed, so they left. I even had an extended family member directly affected by all these changes personally. But this family member, we were having a birthday barbecue, we just sat down, started talking, and he's like, man, Roy, um, we don't actually know each other that well, so we were just kind of talking, getting to know each other. But he's like, you know, I'm going through some things in our church. He's like, our church is splitting. And he said, I'm a part of a Methodist church, part of a Methodist denomination, and recently our church is dividing over same-sex marriage. And he said, I don't know what to do because I love this church. But people are leaving, they're splitting, the leadership is split. So many churches and denominations have welcomed homosexual and transgender ideology, even though historically this has been very pagan. Pagan in its beliefs and practices. So here's the question, why? Okay, why? Well, I believe this is all a symptom of our post-Christian culture. And a post-Christian culture, brothers and sisters, I'm gonna keep this brief because we're gonna talk about this more later. But it is a culture that has rejected the king, Jesus, but still wants his kingdom. Okay, what does that mean? They don't believe in Jesus as Lord anymore, and yet they still want his kingdom, the kingdom of grace, mercy, compassion, unity, love towards one another. They still want that kingdom, but they have rejected the king. So they have rejected Christian doctrine, and they have divorced it from Christian impulses. Impulses to love your neighbor, help the oppressed, welcome the foreigner. So they're like, we like those Christian impulses, but we don't like all this Christian doctrine. So they have divorced the two. And in doing that, they have lost both the king and his kingdom. They have lost both. And this is what they've revealed. But they have revealed that all along, they have desired God's gifts more than God's word. There were people who never truly trembled before God's word, as it says in Isaiah 66 too. How many Christians do you know who are like that? You know, I like Christianity. I like the church. Sure, why not grace, right? I like the love. I like the community. Why not? Right, so they have this kind of, you know, general Christian impulse, 
They liked the, the general gifts of Christianity, and yet they truly never had a conviction in the word of God. They never trembled before the word of God. The word that is not just a story, it is our story. Okay, it's talking about everything that is happening today. They never truly received it or were convicted by it. And so ultimately, what they became is more pagan than Christian. Okay, they blurred the distinctions. They emphasized unity over all things. They emphasized grace and compassion over all things. They minimized doctrine. Doctrine divides, right? We don't want truth versus error. Why is there error? Why is there falsehood? Right? It's your truth. It's my truth. And all along, they never knew that that was the very goal of paganism. All throughout history, paganism always taught that opposites were one. Okay, they always taught that. You know, even in these Asian pagan religions, you know, the yin and the yang, the Tao, they're always talking about combining opposites, dark and light brought together. So they were more p- pagan than Christian. So then ultimately, we're going to have to keep this short. How do we respond to it? Okay, how do we respond to all of this? Well, in two ways. First, discern the true work of God, and then declare the truth of God. Discern the true work of God, and then declare the word of God. So first, discern the true work of God. Okay, I, th- I can't think of a more appropriate time than right now to grow in discernment. We need discernment. But how do you grow in discernment? Okay, how, how do you truly begin to recognize error from truth? How do you make your instruments sharp? Well, I love what Jonathan Edwards said, but he just took 1 John 4, chapter 4, and he just said, this is how you know a true work of God from a false work, a demonic work. And so he just kind of broke it down. I don't have time to go into this in depth, but let me just mention. But he said there are five ways from 1 John 4 that you can know a true work of God versus a false work. And he wrote this out of necessity. He was in a time of great revival, but there was a lot of counterfeit happening. And he's like, okay, we need to figure out what is true, what is false. So he's like, this is how you're going to know. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then starting in verse 2, John gives you the test. Number one, it will exalt the true Christ. It will exalt the true Christ. 1 John 2, 4, 2. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So does it exalt the true Christ? We're talking about Jesus, truly God, truly man, born of the Virgin Mary here to save us from our sins, died on the cross, rose again on the third day. Does it exalt the true Christ? Number two, it will oppose Satan's interests. It will oppose Satan's interests. First John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. So how do you know if something is from Satan? How do you know if it's in line with Satan's interests? Well, is this speaking from the world? Is it of the world? And does the world listen? Are large numbers of people in the world who don't know God, who don't tremble before his word, listen? That is from Satan then, according to 1 John. And the true work of God opposes that. It opposes that. Number three, it will point people to the scriptures. It will point people to the scriptures. 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Talking about the apostles and their teachings. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 
Do you know what the apostles have taught? Do you know the scriptures, brothers and sisters? And so if it points people to the true scriptures, and that is a work of God. And if it doesn't, that is not a work of God. So that's the third test. Number four, it will elevate truth. This is kind of similar. But 1 John 4, 6 again. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So truth there is emphasized. Does it elevate the truth? Okay, anything that is true, anything that is lovely in this world, does it elevate that? And then finally, number five, it will result in love for God and others. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever love has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So does it grow your love for God? Okay, just because you, you came across this like Christian Ouija board or this Christian book, quote unquote, but it's new age, I mean, you're reading that, does that increase love for God, the holy God of scripture? Does that increase love for your brothers and sisters in the true way, the way that we've talked about all along, in a way that doesn't approve everything, but you still speak the truth and love? Does it grow your love in that? Or does it just make you, oh, we're all the same. We just love everybody. I just love everybody. Well, then that is not of God. Because a true work of God results in love for the true God and true love for others. So that is how you will know whether something is of God or something is of error in the enemy. So can you discern that? Are you growing in that discernment? And brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you guys. You know, this upcoming year, you know, next year we might talk more about these things, but, but seek to grow in discernment. Have you ever thought about that in your Christian walk? Oftentimes we want to grow in prayer. We want to grow in, you know, I want to read the Bible consistently. I just want to make it to church every Sunday. But make it your goal to grow in discernment. Okay, have you ever made that your goal? I need to grow in discernment. Well, I encourage you, more than ever before, we need discernment. Jesus actually even commands it. Okay, do you even know what age, what season you're living in? Okay, you know how to read the weather. You know what weather is going to be. Do you even know what the times are? Grow in discernment. Do you know the word? Do you know the times? Okay, and then the last thing, we're going to close with this, is declare the truth of God. You not only discern the work of God, but declare the truth of God. And now we come full circle. We come back to 2 Peter 1.16. But isn't this what Peter said all along? If you're going to overcome these false teachers and false teachings going throughout the churches, believers, he said, you need to know the truth of God. And this is what he said. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So do you know what we've testified, Peter is saying? Do you know that truth? For when we received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, have you heard our testimony? Do you know what we've taught? Do you know that? Do you believe that? He goes on and we have something more sure, the prophetic word talking about the scriptures to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Do you know the scriptures? Do you know what God has taught in the word of God? Or every day is it more, ah, oh, gosh, I got to read this because I'm a Christian and God just cheered me up today. Or do you long to learn what is really there? So we come full circle. Peter is saying, do you know this truth? If you're going to combat these false teachers and teachings, you need to know the truth. And not only that, but finally declare the truth. Declare the truth, brothers and sisters. 
Okay, do you know people in your life right now who are maybe struggling with all the things that are going on around the world? You know, they might not even be in the new age. They might not even be in the actual occult, but they might be kind of, you know, drawn into some of these things, these large movements that are going on. Well, all of that is pagan. But have you shared the gospel with them? And it's hard, I know. You know, recently we had a family gathering and I had some opportunities to share the gospel and I tried and I'm trying to bring up topics and it's hard, I understand. But are you committed to declaring the truth of God? But not only just declare it, but first embody it and live it. Embody it and live it. So we're gonna come to a close with this, but I love what Leslie Newbegin said, but he was a missionary in Southeast Asia and I love what he said, but he came back to the UK. He saw how far... Britain had drifted from the gospel, how much it had become secular, and he was just bleeding in his heart for his own country. But this is what he wrote. Authentic Christian thought and action began not by attending, in other words, focusing on the aspirations of the people, not by answering the questions they're asking on their terms, not by offering solutions to the problems as the world sees them, No, that's not how you declare the truth. It must begin and continue by attending, in other words, focusing on what God has done in the story of Israel and supremely in the story of Jesus Christ. It must continue by indwelling that story so that it is our story the way we understand the real story. And then, and this is the vital point, then we focus with open hearts and minds to the real needs of people in the way that Jesus attended to them. So does that make sense? So New Begin is saying, if you want to actually make a difference in the people around you, then first know the gospel, know the scriptures really well, so well that it becomes your story. And once it's become your story, then now look at the actual needs of the people, not what they're telling you they need, but what they actually need and begin to share how it meets those needs. Remember, a lot of the people in paganism, they want community. You have the good news, right? What offers greater community? Is this some pagan circles up in Santa Barbara? I mean, what offers that more than the gospel? Okay, people are looking for identity. They're looking for truth, right? They're looking for security, protection, guidance. What offers more than the gospel? Okay, these are the real needs we need to share, amen? So let's just come before the Lord. We're gonna just wrap it up right here. We live in very interesting times. very dark times and yet at the same time incredible opportune times an incredible opportunity is before us to speak the truth like never before and so we praise God we thank God We're just going to spend a brief moment as we do in response, in prayer. And today is Communion Sunday, so we're going to take communion together. But, but let's just come before him right now.